0: Hello, I'm Jesse Merrill. I am a craft baker, uh wood turner, green woodworker. I work in Guelph, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to Cut the Craft.
1: I, I have shrews in my basement. Do you know what shrews are? They're they're like they're kind of like a cross between a mole and a mouse. They have these pointed they're little voices. Yeah, but they're like they're vicious. They vicious and <laughs> territorial. Like, I mean, it's crazy. I I put my um humane mousetrap down in the basement to catch them. Um, uh, because I was like spying on them the other day. I was like, what is going on down there? And I finally finally saw them, like, caught them in the act, and like <laughs> I was like, all right, I know what's going on. They're shrews. So I I put my humane mousetrap down there. And I caught three shrews what? in one night. And <laughs> the one shrew killed the other shrews. It was oh, like, yeah. Whoa. <laughs>
0: That's what I wondered.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: My dad sets uh, humane um, mouse traps too. They live in an ancient log house, I think, from the 1840s oh. or 50s. And so oh, it's wow. just full of mice. And he also keeps, beside his mouse trap. he keeps like a bucket with a little food dish and water dish and everything that he puts them in one at a time. He gets up all through the night and puts them in there, you know, before he takes them down and across the road.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, welcome to Cut the Craft, everybody. I'm Brian.
1: And I'm Amy.
3: And we are here with Jesse Merrill, a craft baker and green woodworker slash bowl turner out of Ontario, Canada. Jesse, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It's really exciting to be here.
1: Yeah. Um, so can you do a little bit of a deep dive into what you're making and how you fit within your respective fields?
0: Yeah. So I think my situation is not, not unique, but different from many of the folks that you've interviewed, um, in that I, uh, I have a craft that supports me um, and supports my family, uh, and another craft that is uh, even dearer to my heart—that is uh, my woodworking. And um, gosh, I don't even know where to begin. The woodworking has been there my whole life, and uh, since you know, since childhood for sure. And the uh, the baking came along midlife and provided a, a, an amazing way to actually make a living um hmm. sorry I've, I've prepared notes on some of these questions that you guys asked so that i could <laughs> actually sound sentient um it's
2: okay, maybe yeah. maybe
0: i'll back all the way up to, <laughs> to childhood so i was mm-hmm. raised in a very committed hippie family mm-hmm. um and we were very migrant um, in my childhood and the one the one constant uh you know, coming from my dad was every community that we lived in or every place that we were, you know, he would kind of infiltrate the, the local craftsmen and, and, you know, get involved with, um, with folks in what, in what they were doing there. And so I was raised with a lot of really amazing craftspeople um, around me at various times. And my dad, of course, is is one of those, but he never really managed to make a living uh, from craft. It was Mm -hmm. uh, it was a struggle. And that really, you know, affected my thinking around craft and also my own drive. And so when I became an adult or when I when I was late in high school, they they supported me in studying uh, guitar making and uh, later that morphed more into reconstruction and repair of, of vintage instruments, um, wow. which was, you know, a wonderful thing to do. And I, I, that, that suited the detailed part of my personality really well. Um, you know, going, going into the tiniest details of, of, of doing amazing repairs on, on really valuable stuff mm. and, that, that's cool and it was really wonderful but I burnt out on that and, and one of the things that I burnt out on was I wanted to do something that was really vital to my actual community around me and hmm. also my, my dad had been a, a boat builder at, at one point for quite a while and boats are a lot of money and expensive guitars are a lot of money and, and so
2: <laughs> when, I, when I made
0: this big life shift Um, it was to selling something that cost you know, six or so dollars a piece and had a really great planned obsolescence in it. And Mm -hmm. in hindsight, it was brilliant. You know, I have no idea how I stumbled on this thing, um, (laughs) but there it is. Like it, it literally feeds us through very small donations of our community. Um, you know, and that is, uh, something I could never sort of dreamed up on my own. Um. And it allows me now to, you know, work sort of half the day in the bakery and half the day exploring um, this this other, I don't know, is it Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde? <laughs> Whichever
2: one's on the other end,
0: uh, over here making, making wood, um, making wood into things. And um, I don't know, together they're really exciting. Um, <laughs> And the the wood work, I I sell stuff, I do sell stuff, but I have basically promised to myself never to really try to make my living from it because I don't want to wear it
2: out. And Mm -hmm. I've worn other
0: things out, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't want to wear out my interest in it and my love for it. Um, That said, when I do sell things, I am impeccable about supporting the prices that other craftsmen who do make a living, you know, will get for the similar object. So mm. I'm never going to undercut somebody, mm-hmm. that's, right? That's not cool. Um, but and I sell several thousand dollars worth of stuff in in a year, which is great. But mostly it pays for tools, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah.
2: <laughs>
3: I think that it's really interesting uh, how you were talking about kind of those two ways of approaching your craft, where one is that you're you know making these really like these more involved pieces that cost a lot more and a lot fewer of them. Um, and then you have this other side where it's like this consumable that's like six bucks and is like sort of the ultimate, like crowdsourced income kind of. <laughs> yeah, um,
0: And to me, this is an interesting thing say that I think my picture of true craft in a traditional sense, you know, go back to pole lathe turners in the woods in in Britain or whatever, you know, is making a lot of, of something until it's mm-hmm. so much muscle memory that you do it and that's where bread is in my world mm-hmm. um, mm. and the wood I, I rarely get the opportunity really to make a couple of, more than a couple things similar you know mm-hmm.
3: uh, yeah well it's just it's so funny because from my own perspective i've always worked sort of towards the opposite goal in a sense like where i was trying to do fewer things you know for slightly more mm-hmm. um and so yeah, I'm just finding it really fascinating, but maybe the key to that or the big difference is that, you know, having them be something that's consumed. So that way it can, you know, it continues to feed itself. It's not one small cheaper thing that's going to be around for forever. And this is something mm. potters um,
0: figured out thousands of years ago, right? Land thoughts. <observer. laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Huh. Cool.
3: Well, how did you start your kind of journey into baking I mean you mentioned you sort of fell into it but what's the what's the story there yeah
0: so the story is a little inexplicable and it certainly was to my wife at the time um (laughs) I, I would back up and say that that my introduction to both these crafts came from both of my parents and I actually in in making these notes I I traced it back to one object which was a bread bowl that my dad carved when I was probably eight or nine years old with wow. my mother, um, who made all of our bread through my whole childhood. Wow. So there is a tie-in together there, which is kind of exciting for me to actually realize just like yesterday. Um, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, handmade food, of course, is, is, um, is a thread in my life. But there was a period in my 20s when, you know, I was eating lots of frozen meals and, you know, working too hard at what I was doing and not really taking – thought of food and then along came you know my next life with young children and and i think that that took me back to remembering how central to our lives my mother's weekly bread baking was
2: hmm.
0: and, and 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 seeing the value of that in a in a new way as an adult right because as a child a lot of the places we <laughs> lived taking a you know a whole wheat homemade bread sandwich with sprouts on it uh, might as well leave it in the lunchbox because (laughs) i was weird and uh, (laughs) that's all there was to it but um i don't remember what your question was brian
3: (laughs) well no it was yeah it was just kind of the journey of like how did yeah how you got to doing bread professionally.
0: Right. So, so yeah, so I was, I was working, um, at Folkway music and if anybody is, you know, deeply into, uh, American credit instruments, uh, that's listening, they'll probably recognize Folkway is, is one of the very top, um, you know, establishments doing what it does in the world. And, uh, I had been there since it was just Mark and me and then it kind of grew and grew and, and, um, the time that I was ready to leave, I was sort of. It happened quicker than I meant it to happen, um, but I had in the summertime built a, a small, like larger than a pizza oven, but a small bread oven in my yard um, with my young three-year-old daughter, and and you know we we're having fun with that. It was right at the beginning of the sort of backyard pizza oven craze on on uh, on the interwebs, and. Um, <laughs> somehow I I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to quit my, my good paying job, my real job, uh, maybe I can do this. I think maybe I can, I, we live in a bit of a bread desert. There wasn't a place, you know, there for, for many miles making um, great bread. And Mm -hmm. I, I just, I stumbled on that moment in time when, when sourdough was beginning to be a thing, but this is, this is, I think 15 years ago now, 14 years Mm -hmm. ago, Mm -hmm. 2007-ish, that I was doing that, and uh, so info was pretty thin on the ground, uh, and I had to invent a lot of what I was doing, And and it, you know, or find little videos on YouTube and trying to look in the background of what somebody's doing back there yeah.
2: <laughs> you yeah.
0: on that for one, one thing or another. Right. But that's definitely yeah. how it was for me with bread baking. I mean, trying to figure out how to do, you know, a dozen mm-hmm. loaves of bread in a day, you know, as opposed to two or three. And, uh, and I did. And so we ran out of my kitchen, out of our home kitchen for a year and a half or two years, um, you know, getting up in the crazy hours of the night and making like, you know, two dozen loaves of bread and fussing and fuming over it and baking them in all sorts of weather outside in this tiny little oven. And wow. uh, and then it was like, okay, well, if we're going to make a go of this, if I'm going to make a go of this, we have to have, or, you know, something that's A, legal, and B, um, <laughs> able to do a much bigger volume than this. And I, I should stop and just underscore that none of this, none, none of any of these things would have happened if it weren't for my wife's, you know, deep support. And mm-hmm. and the fact that, honestly, that she, you know, she's a teacher, and in Canada, that's a pretty good income. And, you know, she's fed us through all the vagaries of, of you know, first becoming a baker. Uh, mm-hmm. and, wow. and she uh, she was also very clear that she did that. She did that for me, but she also, you know, Collaborated on this with me in terms of doing it for the community so that we could live in a town that had this. And Mm. um, I don't know, it's different in New England and and in a few different parts of the world, but here it's thin on the ground. You know, there's not a lot uh, of folks doing, certainly then, and and still, you know, what doing. So that was great for me, but it was also um, difficult because I'd never been in a bakery, I never worked in a bakery, I still haven't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, other than my own. So I invented hmm. everything about it, you know, I'm like, well, maybe, maybe we should have this and we should put it there, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, um, yeah, so we bought a different house, three, three houses up the street from us that had an attached garage, because in the zoning around here, you have to, you can have a, you can have a, a certain, certain small businesses you're allowed to have at home, but it can't be an outbuilding It has to be mm. actually attached to your house.
3: Oh, interesting. Weird thing, right?
0: So there was a little one-car garage attached to this house, so we traded houses. And um, that interior space, you know, I got a a mixer. That was my first big expenditure, $5,000 for this used mixer. Yeah. Wow. um, You know, just a table and a little homemade cooler in one corner. And then outside... Um, just outside of that and quasi legal to that, <laughs> a, a
2: huge <laughs> brick oven, right?
0: Like a brick oven that's bigger than most garden sheds. Um, so the inside wow. of that oven is, uh, four and a half, I think close to seven feet. And so I, I built that the fall. I think we laid the foundation five days after my son was born. So it was a crazy time in our lives. Right? It, yeah. was, Jeez. It, it was a really crazy time. And, um, and then had to learn how to run that thing and how to do everything about, you know, making bread on mass and selling it in business, like business is not something I I was raised with at all. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and and it's not in any real branch of my family. So I've had to figure out a lot of things along the way. But um, anyway, this, you know, beautiful wood fired brick oven in the backyard and, and we sold shares and, you know, like a, like a CSA, we called it a CSP, mm-hmm. a Community Supported Bakery.
4: Oh, and like
0: that. Yeah. Right. And so we would, you know, um, sell, I don't know, two or three months worth of bread at a time ahead to people. And, and that was how we funded it. They gave us money to do that. amazingly. Mm-hmm. And we then, you know, would have these crazy days of, of baking and then getting out and delivering bread to people's doorsteps, actually handing it into their hands at the doors, you know, Well, it was still warm and not sustainable at all. But (laughs) (laughs) but I bought a community of customers that way. You know, I I I served them essentially so well that they that they went for it, Mm -hmm. and um, that was the beginning of it. And then we did that for uh, essentially total, I think, of nine years. And then uh, then just down the street uh, 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 on the you know main street, not 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 downtown Main Street, but uh, outside of downtown Main Street. Um, this old laundromat came up available uh, to rent, and it took the big plunge of actually making it a, a street front.
3: Wow. wow.
0: So that was five, you going on six years ago. Um, and that was a really big deal because, you know, I, I can't emphasize enough. I've never worked in a bakery. I've never <laughs> done anything. <good> <laughs> and, you know, I, I did it partly, you know, I, I saw that we were making an okay living. I, me and one other guy who was actually a baker were, were doing okay, you know, in, in, in my garage there. Um, but honestly that uh that big bread oven is is outside it's protected by a a shed um but it was open to the weather and sort of sort of just a roof and canopy kind of thing over it Mm. and and you know we have real winter here and i work in centigrade so i think the the lowest temperature i ever baked is minus 29 which i think is like Minus twenty three Fahrenheit or something like that. <gasps>
2: wow!
0: And that was insane. And every single day of that shortened my life, you know, consequently,
2: <laughs> in a real way.
0: I mean, there was like I would have to have gloves on to load the oven. I would have gloves on so my fingers didn't freeze, but the bread was freezing to coming out of the trays and you know onto the peel yeah. to load into the oven. It was, Whoa! That like, was,
2: oh, ah!
0: you know, was insane. That's crazy. Um, but I learned so much, you know, and. And so, anyway, so that was a backing up, and then and then going forward, you know, I I was very happy then to actually go electric, um, and you know, get a get a real modern oven, and Mm. (laughs) a completely indoor space. Just felt like, wow, this is incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Still make a living, and and I was able to hire a whole bunch of people. Um, Mm. You know, essentially over the over the course of this time, we've. Somewhere around a dozen people work there, mm-hmm. and that was part of my thinking. Was you know this thing can feed more families than ours. Uh, there's That's some awesome. challenges in that, and certainly challenges in becoming a boss and a, an employer. Um, we could touch on that more later because I don't know. Probably not very many of the folks that you interview get into that situation where uh, you know. I know most most craft folks that I know. Are pretty much single person operations, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So taking that from single person having absolute control of the product, or you know, or hoping for absolute control <laughs> of the product, um, to letting other people do it and and needing mm-hmm. other people to do it, and then managing their needs and their skills, and you know, is um, that's been the biggest challenge for sure. Wow, and that does not go away. I, that's the part I didn't understand going into it. I I pictured that I would find other crazy people like me you
2: know, <laughs> who, who were
0: dedicated to, to doing that with me. And I found one, and that's wonderful. Um, <laughs> but the rest of them come and go, right?
1: Right. Um,
0: yeah. And that is not something I had prepared myself for, uh, either emotionally or, or in you know, reality and having to hire people repeatedly, mm-hmm. you know, because they come and go as lives mm. do. And uh, anyway, that's a whole direction of challenges that we could talk about later if you want. Uh,
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: The John C. Campbell Folk School's new catalog for all 2022 classes is now available. You can explore a variety of subjects, including basketry, weaving, blacksmithing, woodworking, and more through their e-catalog at folkschool.org. Scholarship opportunities are available for all classes, so for more information, visit the scholarships page on their website, folkschool.org, or email scholarships at folkschool.org.
3: The North House Folk School teaches traditional craft on the shores of Lake Superior. Now taking registrations for courses through December. Scholarships are available, so learn more at northhouse.org.
1: I, I hadn't thought about that, but I've thought I didn't of, either. <laughs> yeah, <that's what> <laughs> I mean, probably partially because I've never ever been in a position to hire anyone. I can barely <laughs> hire myself. So like, it's like, <clears throat> yeah, it's kind of interesting. I, um, I don't know. Yeah. It just makes me think about like the difference between like a craftsperson just in their workshop making singular pieces of whatever and then when does the transition from handcraft made by one person to like industry happen and like Mm -hmm. what are the what are the divisions there because i still think that like small business and cottage industry and things like that like making bread by hand are all craft pursuits yeah you know
0: And, and certainly the way we do it is you know, mm-hmm. um, and I sort of set up the bakery. I did definitely set up the bakery in such a way that the public could see us making bread by hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. You know, so it's open to that, and and there's a give and take there. You know, mm-hmm. and there's there's the positivity or the interest or the questions that come from the public, and there's the, you know, the fact of people, you know, essentially dancing with their hands back there doing stuff. Yeah. And, Yeah, I don't know, you know, it's, it's, it's akin to the question of the difference between art and craft, you know, Mm -hmm. fine art and craft. It's, it's this other line between craft and, and as you use the word industry,
4: Mm -hmm.
0: um, you know, we're certainly not at an industrial scale at all. We have a couple of big electric mixers, Yeah. um, (laughs) (laughs) but that's it. And, uh, and other than that, you know, a really nice, um, this is my second electric oven. The first one didn't work out for me so well. So, this is a, you know, it's a really, it's worth two or three times what any car I will ever own is worth, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's a great machine. But, and it allows this to be done at a scale, but we're still like, you know, this is a scale of making between 250 and 500 loaves of bread a day, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is a lot, but it's mm-hmm. not very much. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in terms of, of what you know big bakeries do or even you know even medium bakeries do and yeah um there are certainly very handcrafted bakeries that that i know about that are making you know in in the thousands a day wow so it's an interesting gray area in terms of uh well i don't know if it's a gray area it's not a gray area we are definitely in the world of craft um mm-hmm. But it also utilizes some people's hands and skills who are maybe not complete craftsmen, right? Crafts mm-hmm. people, they are, they're, they're doing a job. Um, hmm. So there's a, there's a funny, that's where the gray area is. You know, mm-hmm. there are a few of us who have the skills to do all the things, but and and i envisioned early on when i envisioned building this bakery on the street front that everybody including the front of house staff would would have had their hands in every stage and know everything about the place and and that was pie in the sky like this <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> which has been that's been a hard one for me to wrap my head around you know that even the folks working with the bread you know you can't it's not really easy to teach them how to do the mix or how to do the bake. The bake is an incredible choreography that has to go together to keep it the way I want it, you know, to keep the product the way I want it to be.
3: Yeah. That's, it's really interesting. It kind of reminds me of, um, I feel like there are only two people I can think of off the top of my head who I know have like employees and stuff, uh, who we've spoken with. One being a Beam who, uh, makes paints. Oh, wow. Um, and then also uh she's well,
1: also in Canada.
3: Yeah, also in Canada. Yeah. I don't know. Her. I'll look uh, her yeah, yeah. And yeah, and and then also there was uh Julia Kauthoff mm-hmm. in Sweden who makes carving axes. Right. And one of the things that I thought was interesting that she talked about when she, in in regards to having employees and stuff was, you know, she has some people who do this stage of the process, some people who do that stage. But she was like, but there are these things that like I have to do. <laughs> and She's <laughs> like, I would not trust anyone else to do this because I have such a specific vision in my head. Hmm. And so, yeah, I was kind of curious, like with you, maybe what that balance of, yeah. I guess, being forced to trust employees because it's way too much for you to control everything. So you have to there is that letting go but then there must also be those things that like you can't quite let go.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I would say my situation is almost exactly like hers and I don't know what steps I haven't listened to the interview you did with her yet, but it's on my list and um, I don't know which steps, you know, she needs to control that way. For me, the place both that crosses my enjoyment level and my need for control is in the actual baking. So Mm -hmm. in, in our setup, I have, one woman who is very skilled and, you know, basically runs the place with me. Um, and she does the mixing, almost all the mixing of the dough. And she does and oversees, you know, the rest of the back of house prep work and stuff like that. And the shaping of those loaves. At this point, I've pulled myself back to um, an emergency filling person and the person who does the actual baking. So our, our system is, is we, we mix the levains uh, in the evening of one day, then in the morning, we have these three huge buckets, let's say they're you know, sort of 20 kilos each of, um, of levain, which is sourdough, you know, ripe sourdough culture. And so those get mixed through the morning of that second day. And then in the afternoon, they get shaped and put into uh, what are called bannetons, baskets that are made of cane, um, Uh that came from, uh, those ones are from Poland. And then those go into the big walk-in fridge uh, overnight. And I come in in the wee hours, but not the two wee hours, Um, (laughs) and and assess those and, you know, sort of massage them along in terms of anything needs a little more time or, you know, whatever there's there's a few things that happen there and then bake them in sequence of what's telling me what there um Hmm. so that's the place where i've found the control that is both the job that i really like to do is that baking and that's the place where i can control what the customer actually sees in front of them you know in terms Hmm. of the scoring in terms of you know how how dark that loaf is and and we bake dark you know, mm-hmm. and um, and just what that is. That's the place where I can give it the final touches of control to put it forth as a piece of art, you know, uh, to the customer. So that's that's where that has landed for me. And yeah, so then there are other people whose jobs are dedicated, obviously only to front of house to, you know, helping the customers to, to fulfilling orders and stuff like that. And then there are a couple of folks two or three folks whose job is to do whatever jobs in the back. And then there's a head of pastry and a head of
3: bread. Yeah. Maybe this is a silly question because I feel like it's sort of inherent in the nature of what bread is, but like, do you ever feel a, is it ever bittersweet to let like a perfect loaf go or to know <laughs> that like, to know that it won't be around forever is sort of that like ephemeral nature something that, is like the beauty of it and that you can continue to pursue like the perfect loaf. That's an awesome
0: question, Brian. I think the answer is exactly the opposite of that. There's oh. <laughs> the problems I have when I have to put out a loaf that, you know, isn't quite what I wish <laughs> <laughs> to. <Touché. laughs> um, uh but yes, yeah, sometimes I waffle between bringing I bring home well I bring home the ones that fall on the floor and the uh, you know, a, imperfect ones and sometimes i bring home a perfect one because i just love that thing yeah oh that's wonderful (laughs) and because i don't know who's gonna notice you know (laughs) that this one is so much perfect because you know i'll put it beside all these other ones and i go that one but the you know average person doesn't doesn't feel that way about it so yeah no you (laughs) got to put that
3: one in like the the like beauty and the beast like rose cloche thingy that you know like the glass case (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> totally. they, they don't stay
1: good for long <laughs> yeah, touche yeah. that's a good thing
3: true yeah yeah
1: um so i was thinking as you were describing releasing you know a control around the process for the bread baking how does that relate to your relationship with the process of making bowls and your wooden work
0: awesome yeah this is this is an area that I that I do uh, that I've made notes and want to talk about with you guys because I because I wonder, you know, I wonder myself. Um, in in me as a craftsperson and throughout my life has been these two competing voices, and one is perfectionism, you know, and one is the opposite, you know, maybe wabi-sabi, if you will. Um, and as I get older and as I hopefully mature in some senses in the right senses um i i really am trying to loosen up on perfectionism and have less uptightness about things or 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 preciousness i suppose um, you know my work my work years ago with with guitars and, and stringed instruments was all about perfectionism you know the perfecter, the more perfect you could make it the the, the better and that suited that part of my personality but I, I really admire, and I mean, I'll throw this one at you, Amy. Like, I admire your work because you're not making it. Sorry, I hope this is not insult. You're not making it perfect. Um, yeah. <laughs> so insulting.
2: <laughs>
0: I'm um, so angry. <laughs> no, I mean, but what I see in your work is similar to what I see in in Yoga Sundquist's work. Mm. You know is this beautiful folk sense of, Mm -hmm. of decorating a surface, um, but not, not getting uptight about it, you know, and maybe you do get uptight to get there. I don't know, (laughs)
1: you know, I think, I think that you're, I, first of all, I think you're right on, I don't, I don't disagree with you at all. Um, but I think for me, it's a response to my perfectionism. Because I know like I could spend a billion hours on something and it would never be perfect enough for me. So I've, I've sort of decided to be okay with it not being perfect. And, and also like really now that I've cultivated that in myself, I, I'd much rather surround myself with imperfect things and create imperfect things, but it's coming from a place of like, acknowledgement that i'm not perfect and my work is never going to be perfect right. and i think that that sort of like letting the edges show a little bit i is important for me personally yeah
0: yeah i mean i'm not surprised at all i think you, you said just about what i feel myself mm-hmm. and and so in my woodwork I'm, I'm constantly trying to loosen up you asked mm-hmm. a question on paper um you know about different finishes that I use, sometimes sanded, sometimes carved, sometimes tool finished. And again, we can go more into that later, but I want to make everything tool finished. You know? <laughs> I absolutely do. I hate sanding. I don't love looking at sanded and, you know, but there's also some practicalities to that, you know, mm-hmm. first of all, some pieces of wood just don't show themselves or, or, you know, it, without some polish.
2: Yeah. And, yeah
0: also really trying to make things practical for use you know or Mm -hmm. or feel right in the hands of somebody who isn't um a fundamentalist about this you know just Mm -hmm. somebody who wants to buy a bowl well they want it to stay clean you know (laughs) 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 um so they want it cleanable and and that's hard to do sometimes Mm -hmm. with a tool finish um Mm -hmm. and the other thing there and Again, maybe this isn't where we were in the conversation, but as I've gotten better with, with wood turning in particular, and so I'm not using a foot-powered lathe, right? and I'm, I'm using electric mm-hmm. lathe. And
2: mm-hmm.
0: so you can get really, really good. You can get really clean. And the what I've found is the closer I get to really clean cuts, in a certain way, it's it disappoints me because it looks like I right. it 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 ends up looking like I just did a really crummy job of sanding it. it's like i'm so good with that tool at a certain stage that it's that it's all but sanded you know Mm -hmm. and and some of my earlier things when i look back at them and go okay you know i was i wasn't very good at steering that gouge around that curve you know and and it's got some rings in it and and you know wobbles in it and it looks handmade and mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my goodness, you know, well, I'm so much better at it now that I've made it not look handmade.
2: That's right.
0: That's kind of retrograde. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> um, but anyway, back to back to <laughs> bread versus bowls with that. Um, yeah, I mean, the bread has an inherent. Uh, I, it's, I'll say, I think easy to make it look handmade. You know, it is handmade. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there is a certain amount of, um, you know, I listened to that wonderful interview with akira sataki the other day that you guys did
2: mm-hmm. and uh
0: you know his thing of putting three or four months worth of work into the oven <laughs> 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 and then like crying tears when he opened it up um is to a certain extent familiar to me only it's you know it's just
3: hard it's up. just every day <laughs> yeah,
0: <exactly. laughs> <laughs> exactly, and there's there's similarities there too. Sometimes stuff will look burnt coming out of the oven, and then when it cools off and gets into daylight, it's not, you know, but mm. <laughs> or not to my eyes anyway. <laughs> um, so so there is an inherent um, like letting go. You 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 mm-hmm. put the bread on the peel, score it, put it in the oven, and it's going to do what it's going to do,
2: mm-hmm. Um,
0: mm-hmm. which is so different from. Most of the stages of wood turning, unless you're green, green wood working, you know, and then there's this point at which, okay, now you're going to dry on your own and I sure <laughs> hope you come out good.
1: <laughs> you're right, yeah.
0: um,
1: All the best. <laughs> <yeah>.
0: <laughs> and, you know, and I do try to control that process sometimes too. And, I, you mm-hmm. know, don't tell anybody, but I love using a microwave to dry wood. I just oh. love it. Um, yeah. um,
3: <laughs> and I was going to say one one thing I really liked that you said earlier was. <clears throat> you know, having to do with your tool work getting better, but sometimes it looking like it was poorly sanded. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about how funny that is because I feel like, you know, there's all these arguments between sanded versus tool marks versus this like yeah. i feel like the one thing in the venn diagram that both parties can agree on is that something that's poorly sanded is definitely bad Oh yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: you know you, you pour poorly sand something and pour some urethane on it and <laughs> you're good to go uh, oh. uh, um, I, I haven't answered that thing in myself you know like i i i do almost everything Yeah, if I'm making a salad bowl and it's going to be tooled finished, and most of them are, I will at least give a, you know, a quick buzz of 320 grit over it um, on reverse on the lathe, just to get rid of that little bit of fiber that is really makes it hard to clean, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think, and knock off a couple corners, you know, that are sharp. And Mm -hmm. um, I think that's important. And I really, really, really don't believe in being, you know, fundamentalist or dogmatic about stuff.
1: But,
3: yay
1: <laughs> cheers from the crowd <laughs> um
0: you know that there's I, I really i i i unfollow those people on instagram you know? <laughs> um but that said i do believe in pure craft i do you know i absolutely do believe in in the value of pure hand skills but mm-hmm. you know like look at curtis buchanan you know you gotta have a bandsaw on a lathe like Mm-hmm. there's no reason not to, you know, mm-hmm. you're working everything. He, I mean, I think he hardly even uses an electric drill, but you know, there's some practicalities that, and there's some machines, I guess, that collectively we've all decided aren't really machines. Right. And I think right. <laughs> a band saw, an electric lathe and a, an electric drill are probably three of those. Yeah. Mm. Um, that, that, that they don't do anything to, you know detract from the from the hand process they'll you know, totally actually help you
2: know, yeah
0: and make it sustainable
3: yeah and yeah, really, the sustainability is a big part absolutely yeah. and, and in the bakery
0: it's one of the biggest things uh, we talk about in very many forms is sustainability you know is, is um, making it so your hands don't blow out your elbows you know mm-hmm. and um and then sustainability where are we sourcing the flour it's a different kind of sustainability but you know that's a that's a real thing too Totally. There's all these sustainabilities interlinked uh, are really, really important. Um, and for me, the woodwork is part of what makes the bakery sustainable. You know? um, it's my it's my safe place and my wonderful place and my place of wonder and exploration that I can go mm-hmm. and uh, you know keep myself semi sane.
4: Jewelry is a pretty make-or-break, sink-or-swim kind of thing. From a purchasing standpoint, I mean. And other than that, I know nothing about it. Like, I have failed horribly quite often. And that's the only detail you need to know, really. That and, uh, you know, if it's on a discount website, uh, is that ever the move? I also know nothing about clay. Even though we've had plenty of people on the podcast who use it and fire it up in their kilns and whatnot, since I don't interact with it enough, it's still a mystery. I even bought some this week for the art teacher where I work, and she was like, I need clay with grog, cone zero four 4 or lower. And I was like, do what now, grog? Made me think of Groot from Guardians of the Galaxy and and a clay version of him, plus what's with the cones? anyways, back to jewelry if you flub, you really flub. You could lose someone's trust, maybe. Or if you knock it out the park, you could build trust and bonds. Our next guest is based in Washington, D.C., and makes jewelry out of clay. Makeda Smith runs CO Ceramics and puts her personality and so much more into the shape she makes and the way she shines the glaze. I'd go as far to say that As opposed to what we've established so far about jewelry purchases, if you made the move to get her jewelry for someone and it wasn't considered a knockout, well, the shoe's on the other foot. And maybe you should question who you got the jewelry for. You Know what I mean? Tune in next episode, whether you do or don't, to learn more about Makeda and her craftings.
1: It reminds me of... um... The conversation we had with Danielle Chuchantouranand, who's a potter in Chicago. And she was, she sort of has thought about a lot of the same things around like sustainability as far as like keeping your body working Mm -hmm. (laughs) and not broke. And like, she had a conversation, I think with a customer who, where she, I think the situation was where she was saying like, oh, well, I didn't, I didn't uh, throw that with like a kick wheel or something. And the customer didn't know the difference. It was like, well, what's the benefit? <laughs> what's yeah, the benefit totally. of uh, of doing it that way? And she was just like, oh, well, well I don't know.
0: I, I, yeah. <laughs> and I think sooner or later, we all hit that one. And one of them is tool finish, you know? Like, people yeah. are like, what do you mean tool finish? Like, why why not sand it? And I'm like, well, because sanding sucks. <laughs> 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 And there are some legitimate reasons not to sand things. And yeah. and if you're good at something, you shouldn't have to do very much of it. But the
2: customers right. don't understand
1: that by and yeah.
2: large. Mm-hmm.
1: By know. and large, yeah. Some Yeah. some, of yeah. Them, some of them have, you know, certain ideals and stuff that I think can be in common with well, mm-hmm. the craftspersons. But I think the general general customer and supporter is like kinda like, nah, eh, like it's okay. I like yeah. this bowl. And if you made it, you know, this way or that way, it doesn't matter. I still like the the piece itself. You yeah, know, so let so. me draw that
0: back to bread. So I, you know, I worked in, in a brick oven all those years. Um, and people thought, a lot of people thought that was where the magic was. And there is a certain amount of magic and and um, certainly some aesthetic and and you know there there are some reasons to use a brick oven. But honestly the best European you know electric ovens um, are built to mimic that and and do a better job. You know mm-hmm. of that, and so <laughs> I I, have, I get people still coming to me five years later saying, you know what, your bread didn't suffer at all when you when you moved ovens, and I'm like, no, mm-hmm. it, got better. <laughs> it <just laughs> got better. You know, I have way more control over it. I can, I have control over the timing. I, I can I can fit way more loaves in the oven, so if they're all ripening up too fast, I can bake them, you know, or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. And, and so people don't understand. They get they do get. Um, you know, an aesthetic vision or something of of what it, of what craft means and should be and what tools are allowed or aren't, Mm -hmm. um, that aren't necessarily realistic to actually doing the best job, you know, and again, that's the place where I don't want to be fundamentalist about anything, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to do the best work I can, Mm
1: -hmm. yeah, yeah.
3: Oh yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it just makes me or, this is such a good conversation because then I'm thinking about like all the conversations we've had where we talk about the importance of process and like and I and I think sometimes we can get hung up on how a process has to be and then see it to like apply that to everybody, you know? Mm-hmm. Because the process of making something is going to be Like if you have this ideal, it's going to be different for everybody. Like that, that ideal Mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, this process for me should be this certain way. That's going to be totally different for everybody, which is what you're saying. I think with saying that you're not dogmatic. And I think that's really important because we can get stuck in. in applying those sort of like strict boundaries around something that like. For someone could be totally incongruent with like mm-hmm. their what they want to do if that makes any sense like
0: well one um, of the ones that's been on my mind lately is paint um and you know it's it's commonly accepted at this time in in uh in instagram history that <laughs> the the only acceptable paint is milk paint you know
2: oh yeah
1: mm-hmm. for like painting wooden stuff yeah
2: yeah yeah
0: you know and Milk paint is really cool for some things. It's really not easy to work with in other ways.
2: Mm-hmm. It brings
0: a certain something of its own to working. But just even in the past few weeks, I'm like, you know what? I don't want to mix milk paint. <laughs> like, I, I don't want to do that. And yeah. I don't want to deal with the dust of it everywhere when I sand it. And I don't,
2: you know, yeah.
0: whatever. There. And I will continue to. I own a lot of milk paint, so (laughs) I'm going to continue using it. But just yesterday, I went, you know, screw it. And I I pulled out some artist's acrylics and painted a bowl. Oh, um,
1: that's great. It stays well. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) It It's so
0: easy. And I got such a great paint finish and color and everything Mm -hmm. out of it. I'm like, no way. I don't
1: need to
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, speaking of paint, this actually really does tie in well with our conversation with Anung Beam, the paint maker, because that was something she talked about a lot was how there's all these romantic notions in people's minds of like, oh, if it's a natural pigment, it's better. And she was like, actually, (laughs) a ton of natural pigments are super poisonous and really toxic. And like, we want to make paint that people can feel safe using. Yeah, And so she's like, sometimes we go to these, you know, more synthetic sources or something like that to attain these colors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And once again, I mean, I think this just ties into what, you know, you and Amy are saying where it's like, hold yourself to whatever standard you want to, but just be very wary (laughs) and in general, don't (laughs) apply (laughs) those standards as a general rule to everybody Mm -hmm. else. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I would hope that, you know, other people would be the same. I mean, things go in fads for sure. And, and let's mm-hmm. be honest, milk paint has been a fad, um, mm-hmm. but it's a fad that's going to be also a lot of people are going to use it their whole careers because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. it, it's great, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but it doesn't have to be the only answer. And that doesn't have to be the only acceptable answer, you know, and your bowl isn't better than mine because, the, you know, I used acrylic paint once. Um <laughs> What are you talking about? <laughs> Who am I talking about? I don't know. I'm
2: about. No one in
0: particular, but yeah. just that I, I'm trying to, I, well, this is me talking myself into this notion. Honestly, this is,
3: this is me going,
0: I can be okay doing this, right?
3: This yeah. is you giving yourself permission. Yeah, i trying to. I'm trying to. <laughs>
2: yeah.
4: Oh, that's great.
1: <laughs> um, so have you had any personal transformations through woodworking and then also baking, big question. Well, yeah,
0: I mean, my whole story, I think- <laughs> Your a, whole life. <laughs> yeah, it's a story of transformation and hopefully all, all of our stories are. But, um, you know, and I've definitely transformed myself from one kind of maker to another kind of maker to another. Um, I don't necessarily have a smarter answer for that.
3: <laughs> well, what about, for example, what you were talking about earlier in terms of like managing people? uh and sort of the mm. transformations you've had to go through at becoming you know yeah. the sole person in control of everything to having to let go and accept that some people are going to come and go some people are there for the long run and like how to deal with all that like has that had any kind of you know how has that changed your perspective
2: it,
0: it yeah it definitely has and and it's not something that i saw coming uh, mm. at me so i guess some transformations are like that, right? They're just a sudden left turn. And suddenly, you know, suddenly I was a boss. And, you know, and and people relate to me as a boss. There's this weird sort of glass wall between us all of a sudden that I actually have to respect on my side because they need it there.
2: Mm-hmm. and
0: um, And also one of the weirdest things about this journey for me has been that not a single person who's ever worked for me in that bakery, um, you know, out on out on the street there, ever saw this bakery here where I was working from home. They've never seen this brick oven in action. They've never seen it, and they don't have that history um, mm-hmm. that, to me, is this continuum of growth. And mm-hmm. they just see a bakery that they applied to work at you know? <laughs> <laughs> whoa yeah uh that's weird because <laughs> i don't so well, as, it, to make a as in
3: like that that kind of comes with these sort of like projections of like i don't know success and and those types of things that they're like sort of putting on you without seeing the sort of like more humble origins and like yeah more well, natural honestly, progression. You
0: know, like yeah, yeah I, see, I see i see that if i walk in quietly through the door you know um the vibe is different in there until you know until they see that I'm there too. You know, like there is huh. this thing of being a boss that is 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 just different. You're just you you have to stay on this on the other side of a certain barrier, um, <laughs> and so that's been weird to get used to. I must yeah. say, you know, <laughs> especially in my own you know my own second home there. You know, it's like. Um, sometimes I'm actually not wanted and I have to go, okay, you know what? I just have to leave because these people (laughs) need to not have
3: me breathing over their shoulders. Uh (laughs) (laughs) But that's such an important skill to know, you know, it's like, yeah, I I guess I'm sort of also thinking in the back of my head in the context of like um, somewhat similarly, I suppose. So I've mentioned before on the show that my wife is in the science world. And a lot of times you have these people who are in charge of labs and in charge of a whole staff who there's not really, they're really, really good, thorough scientists, but they're not trained in people management and like human relations. (laughs) And, you know, I can't imagine, I can only think of my own struggles as I've tried to like build up my little business and enterprise and like maintain my craft practice in a somewhat healthy way but like throwing other people in the mix is like sort of blowing my mind. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm that guy, you know, I'm pretty good at what I do, but, but the human resources part of it doesn't come naturally to me. Um, mm-hmm. And so much of my craft life, you know, like I'm, I'm a fairly, I, I like to be alone, you know, I like mm-hmm. to work by myself. I love the one morning a week that I have four hours at the bakery. It's just me you know, and I can listen to you guys, you know, if I want, or I can not like, it's, um, nobody else is, is, is defining, you know, the energy of my space. Um, mm-hmm. but there's no growth in that particularly. And there has been a lot of growth in learning to make room for other people's ways of working, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that has been a really interesting thing is to go, okay, you know what, there's some aspects of this that I can let you do your way. You know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> And I have to make myself okay with that. And it might even turn out better, you know, (laughs) than it was going to be going always my way, you know, again, like let's not be fundamentalist about this. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. But it's hard to let go, you know, Mm -hmm. until it's sort of proven to you that, okay, wait a minute. Actually, you know, that's going really well. Great. Thanks for that idea. You know? Yeah. Um, And that's one of the things about actually having to collaborate with people. Like I'll be honest in high school, I I hated group work, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I <hated> group work, <laughs> and and my wife is a teacher and she loves group work. <laughs> I'm like, what is wrong with you? Don't do that to them. That's not. True. Don't do that to them. <laughs> <laughs> and and yet it is. Uh, there's something you know, of course, that that teachers have always known about. You know, sort of forcing people, either homeopathically to work with each other, or you know, or uh, You know, either because they're the same or because they're opposite or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, where there's a lot of (laughs) gross possibility, gross potential there. This
3: does remind me of this, um, this meme I saw one time and it said, you know, at my funeral, please let my group members be there to bury me. (laughs) And then it just said at the bottom, it just said, so they can let me down one more time. (laughs) 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 But No, yeah. Well, I was wondering then, do you kind of. Like, I mean, you mentioned that four hours you have at the bakery by yourself. And then I know I've also, you know, read that you take time, whether each day it seems like multiple times a week to go into your wood studio and work on your bowls and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you say like, even if that's not a place of like, say, growth in the way we've just been talking, would you at least say that's like a really important like maintenance you have to do to like recenter yourself?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a decompression for one thing, Mm
3: -hmm.
0: Um, and it's a place where I don't put weight on it, you know, as much as possible. I don't put the weight of needing to perform to make a living, right? So to me, that's been really, really important is keeping the bowl turning. Again, you know, like I, I, I do sell bowls, and I do think of it in terms of what other people might like or want, but I don't put too much weight on that. I can make what I want in there, or I can, you know... I can choose, you know, one thing I love seeing on Instagram is the end of year pictures when people burn all the bowls they didn't like. (laughs) (laughs) So I can make that call there and go, okay, that's, you know, that doesn't actually affect my ability to put bread on the table, so to speak. Um, If
3: anything, it might help if you're using the brick oven.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I would. Uh, I, I'm saving up a lot of bowls I, that I want to have a big bonfire at some point, point. and not let oh, anyone else cool. get their hands in there beforehand. These are all getting burnt, man. Like, no, you can't have that. No, you cannot have that
3: one. <laughs> Protected for the burn barrel. <laughs> uh,
0: I don't know if that actually got to the end of that question, but
3: no. Yeah, definitely.
0: Um, in there too, I would. I would say. Um, I also tend to have a Pygmalion complex with things, you know, um, and that's, that's the story of the sculptor falling in love with his sculpture, right. Hmm. Um, which I do every time I make something new and cool. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. You know, and essentially I even feel like who made this, like this <laughs> happened from this piece of wood and this tool and me as some kind of intermediary and look at this thing. Wow. I don't know how to do that, you know, but it happened anyway. <laughs> in spite of me or through me or whatever it is, yeah. um, you know, and for a while, it'll just be my favorite thing, you know, mm-hmm. and of course, eventually, you know, you go on to the next favorite thing. Um, mm-hmm. But that to me is exciting. It always is to is I love Instagram for the inspiration, you know, like, and I, I'm really careful not to copy what anyone's doing, uh, you know. But the inspiration and and the 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 posts that I've saved, you know, on a dull day I'll I'll go through there and, and go, oh wow, look at that. Oh, okay. If I do this part of that, I can take this to there, you know, and, mm-hmm. and this mm-hmm. and and I do plan these things out to a certain extent. And then you hit the lathe and it all just either works or doesn't, you know. And, <laughs> um, and I don't have to put a whole whole lot of weight on that. And you know, also the wood is all free, right? Essentially, other than my energy going into it or the people bringing it to me or letting me have it, whatever, you know. Um, mm-hmm. There is a lot of prep work, obviously. Any any Greenwood worker knows. I'm sure you know, Amy, that
2: mm-hmm. you know, like, there's mm-hmm. a huge
0: amount invested by the time something even hits your bench.
1: Right, yeah. But
0: at the same time, it's, you know, I've, I've had to learn and realize that there's always another piece of wood. Um, yeah, yeah. And that didn't come naturally to me. I'm a bit of a hoarder, you know. And even in childhood, I would, you know, I'd go past, uh, I still have most of a big piece of boxwood that I collected out of somebody's hedge when they trimmed their hedge. And I was like, that's boxwood, man. And wow, yeah. I, I, I need that. And, you know, there's not very yeah. many 13-year-old boys out there collecting pieces of boxwood and keeping them forever. <laughs> 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 um, that's me on that third. Uh- and, uh but,
1: i understand <laughs> yeah
0: but later in life it's like okay you know what just about when i think i've run out of wood that i want to turn something's going to show up in my driveway and you know and then i'm going to have to deal with it and mm-hmm. and so that's helped me to relax a little bit about my making uh, and not be too precious with it you know it's mm-hmm. just that that realization that with with green woodworking with found wood there's always more you know and mm-hmm. that's really exciting to me my favorite wood to work always is you know just a nice creamy piece of of maple or sycamore or something like that that really doesn't have a lot it's not bringing a lot other than its workability to the table Mm -hmm. and and then I can control all sorts of things about it. I can carve it I can paint it I can you know I I can use it as a canvas in a different way than you know a beautiful piece of spalted wood that has this thing that I have to somehow bring out and
2: you know, hmm. it, you know.
0: mm-hmm. and those are both things that i value but um if i had, had to choose all the time i would just take really bland with, really boring Be <laughs> <I love> it. <laughs> better than a boring piece of wood you know and lots of it.
2: <laughs> i
0: want to point Totals. something yeah. at, at brian actually because brian i've been watching you on instagram for a few years and uh i mean i feel like at one stage, it was, you know, it was pretty much all book work. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, I, I was there watching because I dug that. And then you started to make these tools. And um, it wasn't immediately obvious how great at that you were going
2: to get, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, like any of us,
0: like I've messed around with making, you know, like I have my little star stamp that I use for burning the bottom of the bowl. You know? mm-hmm. and, and I sort of etched that out of a, out of a copper nail. And Um, you know, I start at that level and I, I think, you know, if I put my mind to it and did a lot of doing like you've done, I could get okay at it, but, but your, your things are transcending now. It's like, (laughs) it's like, I can see, well, actually I'll go back to like lino printing is something that I've liked to do my whole life too.
2: Mm -hmm. And one of the
0: things I like about it is I can take a drawing. I'm not a great draftsman. I'm not a great drawer, you know? when I start with my simple drawing or cartoon or whatever it may be, and then, and then carve it, it takes on another dimension, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, just through that process, the line width is different than my pencil width, you know, and, and like that. And, and I think I'm really excited by what you're doing with brass, you know, where you're taking a little image and carving it out of that brass and it becomes this thing. I I don't (laughs) know what I'm saying. Tell me something about
3: this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first off, uh, thank you. Um, That's (laughs) super kind. Um, I feel like those tools have been at the heart of my bookbinding journey, even when I was just doing books, Mm -hmm. Um, when I was first learning. And I won't go too far into it, but when I was first learning those tools, when I first saw them, I was like, these are, like a whole separate like ethereal realm of interest for me. <laughs> um, and I was always just really fascinated by them and interested in making them. But yeah, I've, I think I can just really relate to like that, what you were talking about where with a pencil, I find it a lot harder to make something look the way it is in my head mm-hmm. and something about putting like a sharpened little taper of metal in my hand instead of a pencil gives me the ability to express that a lot better
2: yeah yeah
3: and i, I, totally I don't know why
0: <laughs> <laughs> um but i guess too for for me in terms of points in this conversation around perfectionism and, and non is you kind of are straddling along there too and and on impact it looks like absolute perfectionism i mean you got really really clean at it mm-hmm. um
3: a microscope helps, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and yet, and they still have some vitality. They're still alive, and I, I just you know amazed when somebody can do both of those things. And and Amy's obviously doing both of those things too, but heading more towards the you know liveliness in in your carvings, Amy, and your like your shrink pots and stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Brian is doing that other part of my personality, which is like how tiny and perfect can I make this? You know? <laughs> and I keep going, man, I want, I want I want, to buy something for Brian, but what the heck am I going to do with
2: it? <laughs> like,
3: Wood brands. Yeah, well, I've got one. You know? Yeah, that's, touche. I mean, it's like, it's, uh, um, maybe I can, do you make necklaces or anything, Brian? I mean, uh-huh. I'll make anything. I'll make anything. I made Amy a necklace.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe a little that's a bronze little... axe.
3: Oh, wow. Amazing. <laughs>
1: that's cool.
3: Amazing yeah um yeah <laughs> I, I, not to yeah not to derail it or continue to I don't want to talk about me too long, but um, I, I think for me what drives that precision, I guess that side of it is that in the end it has to be a functional tool. Mm-hmm. So I really have to be super precise because the end result isn't just the image you're seeing mm-hmm. like on the face of the tool, but it's the impression of it and how it functions when you are rocking it around to like, make sure you're hitting all parts of the tool. And so luckily that, that function really drives my need to uh, be really precise and cut, cut well and stuff. Cause in general, I'm, (laughs) I'm satisfied with the whole lot less, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't, yeah. It's we we talked with um, with Miko Snellman and he's a rope maker and a knot tire from Finland and and he talked a lot about how his knot tying and rope making and we actually just talked about this in the last episode we recorded <laughs> with Eleanor Rose but yeah how there's kind of this this point that is, seems like a really healthy point to reach for a lot of people we've talked to where it's like making something good enough for you is good enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that it shouldn't be based off of someone else's standard, but something that's coming from yourself um, Mm -hmm. and for yourself, ultimately. And I think that I'm really driven by that as well. And I kind of aspire to get to that point where I can really let go. I'm getting there. Definitely not there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I understand that.
3: The Oak Spring Garden Foundation is accepting applications for their 2023 2 and 5 week interdisciplinary residency programs from now until Thursday, May 26th at 11:59 Eastern Standard Time. Oak Spring Garden Foundation is a nonprofit in Upperville, Virginia on the former private estate of Paul and Rachel Bunny Mellon. These programs are designed to support outstanding practitioners at various stages in their career who would benefit from dedicated time to develop their work in a supportive environment. The interdisciplinary residents include artists, writers, researchers, and ecologists, and are awarded an individual grant of 800 or 2,000, depending on if it's a two- or five-week residency program. They receive housing on-site and shared accommodations for the program, and visual artists will have unrestricted access to a studio space. All residents are able to explore the landscape, farm, and rare book library. To learn more about the residency program and to apply, please visit osgf.org residencies and click on the interdisciplinary residencies image. You can also visit osgf.org to learn more about other programs there.
0: Um, And I think, you know, the question around why do I make so many different looking bowls well I, I i haven't completely settled on what the bowl that i make is you know um mm-hmm. and and exactly what i want it to be i'm getting close uh and sometimes i make big strides forward and i'm like suddenly this shape starts to work for me in a way it didn't two years ago or something but mm-hmm.
2: um
0: <clears throat> yeah the, the line of of trusting yourself or especially trusting your you know, your first instinct on on whether you're going in the right direction something
1: mm-hmm.
0: is pretty interesting
1: That reminds me of something I was thinking the other day about like, or it's actually something I've thought a lot about over the course of my career as a maker is like feeling like I have to have like this really super consistent style and like Mm -hmm. body of work or something that I'm like not adhering to. And it's hard to like distance yourself from your work and like, see that you do have a style and, I think one of the things i've struggled with is just being like why are you not like (laughs) making all the things the same like (laughs) why are you not like super consistent about just making quilt patterns or just making you know geometric designs and now you're doing animals and like so i I think that's that critic inside is like very loud i think for a lot of people and one of the one of the nice things about being a craftsperson and not having to like make a body of work that like goes into a, to a gallery, not that that's bad or anything, but for me, I think I would just be totally stifled by that, like Mm
2: -hmm.
1: creative, I don't know what it is like bookends or something.
0: Well, it's, I Mm -hmm. I sometimes make things that don't fit in my life. Um,
1: yeah,
0: that I, I mean, I like it, um, but it doesn't show up in my house, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, there's um, there's a few pieces that I've made, particularly I think maybe when they're smaller. Um, no, actually, <laughs> the big ones the same. Um, that, that don't that need to be in a room to be seen, where they mm-hmm. they can command the space. You know, these are the pieces that I think of more as art, than as craft. Um, mm-hmm. And they're never going to get that in my house. You know, I've got bowls on every surface that is vaguely close to level you know uh, and <laughs> stacks of them and so you know a beautiful black stained you know oak bowl with with you know carving all over it if it were in a white room in a gallery it would be like oh wow check that out you know but in here it's just like <laughs> in the stacks you
3: know <laughs> lurking <laughs> in a shadowy corner yeah.
0: <laughs> and, and it takes a certain certain something to show up in my house you know in a way that would be different in somebody else's house the same mm. The same piece of work. You know, I, I find that very interesting Just the, the environment, you know, that
3: a piece lands in. Mm-hmm. Do, do you ever find that your, I guess I'm thinking of the age old, you know, form follows function kind of thing. I mean, you mentioned that your first kind of encounter with, with wooden bowls was also very close with a bread encounter <laughs> um, in that it was that bowl your, your dad made for your mom. Do you, does does bread like influence the forms of bowls that you make?
0: Uh, no, I have made a few bread bowls, um, specifically as bread bowls. And and last summer I, I got 80% through making a huge one. I had a huge piece of poplar that was, um, wow, I think it's, how big is that thing? It's like 24 inches wide and, and it's, oh, cool. it's big and, and it had to be a bread bowl, you know? <laughs> But at the mm-hmm. same time, it was like, well, I'm never going to use this as a bread bowl. Um, and I don't think very many people are because it's an object, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> once you put dough in it, it's going to be a bread bowl. And uh, I actually never finished it because I didn't really know what it's for. Um, hmm. Hmm. I hope I will finish it eventually. But my, my thing at the time was, you know, I'd kind of like to stain this black. Like I, sometimes when you make something... It's akin to what we were just saying about drawing with a pencil and then carving out, you know, with whatever tool it brings this livelihood. And you take a piece of wood and take away some of its native woodness, you know, stain it black with iron pigment or, or paint or whatever. And it,
2: mm-hmm.
0: it becomes something that it, is bigger than the sum of the parts, you know.
2: <laughs> um,
0: but bread, per se, is, um, is a world of its own for me. Yeah, I, okay. I, I don't. I don't think that they that they commune in,
1: in the same
3: way. Okay, interesting.
1: That makes me think. Like, what what were dough troughs used for? Like those big, yeah, oval shaped <laughs> dough bowls. I mean, everybody calls them dough bowls, but like, what are those even for? <laughs> so they were.
2: They, um, yeah. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll
0: just add as an aside here: there's a there is an Instagram account called. Hungarian antiques to you I think and uh, they do um warehouses full of things from the villages of Hungary and mm-hmm. sometimes there will be literally hundreds of dobles it makes mm-hmm. me so sad and, wow. you know like the loss of of cultural link there and the, mm-hmm. and they they appear to be like maybe carved you know this bunch by that village carver and maybe this suppose mm-hmm. and they're that that oval shape that you know, um, and yeah. So I mean, pre pre-mixing, pre mixing pre pre mixer days, you know, um, having a, a big trough that you could mix water and flour together. Often, I think in Eastern Europe, my understanding is um, housewives would uh, just allow the the last culture to dry, the last bread dough to dry inside the the bowl without without removing it. And then before they wanted to make bread again, they would just wet it down, and that would become the next culture.
2: Um, yeah,
0: what an amazing process that is, you know. <laughs> it's really cool. So they weren't keeping a you know a separate bread, you know sourdough culture in a jar or something necessarily.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, but yeah, just the uh, a place that you can mix flour and water together with, uh, with a certain amount of impunity is is what a bread bowl is. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh. Yeah. Well, it's been demystified now. (laughs) Well, I was just sort of wondering, because I remember when I was first starting to carve bigger things, which I haven't really done for a while. But, you know, I I even asked some people who were who baked bread, like, do you guys, is there like a market for these (laughs) big dough bowls? And they're like, No. We don't use those, you know. And I was like, "Well, how did this even? Yeah, like, what is the story behind these?" So yeah. that's, that's honestly, it's really
0: cheap. Helpful. You know, like a cheap uh, stainless steel bowl is <laughs> yeah. so much easier to use, right? And right clean yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so in my life, like I was, I was born on the west coast right, in BC, and you know, your question about who who my mentors have been. It, mm-hmm. it will sound very, very odd, but my very favorite craftsperson and I think in some terms as a mentor, although you know, we never met by four or five generations, is Charles Adenshaw, who was a uh, Haida uh, carver in the hmm. late 1800s and early 1900s. Hmm. And I've had a fascination with that stuff. You know, it probably started with the, you know, the, the public work of Bill Reed who was, mm-hmm. um, so he was in the 1960s through 80s, you know, he sort of rediscovered the half of his heritage that was Haida because he was actually the great grandson of Charles Adensha. Um mm-hmm. and, and so he, Bill Reed did, he started out with jewelry. He was actually a jeweler, a, a European tradition jeweler before he was a Haida carver. But eventually he started to, rediscover his roots and and in the big picture he eventually started making these huge monumental uh, sculptures in a reawakening of, of that culture but for me you know even in childhood that was the stuff I wanted to do mm-hmm. and as a young boy you know around 13 or so we had a friend who was not indigenous um, uh, and he uh, he had done a bunch of sort of replicating indigenous, Bowl carving, in particular, he's one of the early influences on me on the fact that you could carve a bowl. And uh, as a child, I, I actually, you know, copied out on paper, traced, and drew all three dimensions and everything of, of some of the work that he had, so that I could do it later. And I did in my in my uh, in my teens and twenties. I did do some of that. I thought I was doing it um, reverently, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and and out of interest um, but i don't even try to do that anymore of course in this mm-hmm. world that's it's just not okay to take somebody else's cultural tradition that you are not part of i don't know where that line ends one of my neighbors said well but anybody can carve a you know a celtic knot mm-hmm. you know so but right now is a time in history when we, especially in canada and i hope in the states too are really trying to make peace with our indigenous neighbors and and the you know, owners of this land and this amazing art I mean there is mm-hmm. no higher craft art than than the work of those particularly of the Haida but other other peoples there in the west coast too of course mm-hmm. um, and Charles Adenshaw I feel hugely influenced by this man and his mm-hmm. work and I have a couple pieces that I've tried to make peace with that in any out- onlooker from the outside would would never see the connection right it's, it's it's mm-hmm. meant to fly under the radar in that way, um, because I don't want to, you know, be on the wrong side of history there at all. But I do want to um, to honor this person, this craftsman who has affected my whole life.
2: You know, hmm.
0: um, I don't know, but there are a few times that I definitely try and, you know, I could draw some inspiration from from that tradition and bring it over without it being in any sense a copy or a stealing of that of that work. I, I haven't gotten there yet in terms of really you know answering that to myself but I just bring it up because I don't know it's an interesting conversation to me that I don't yeah. get to have very often. Right, right.
1: <laughs> I think I think one of the when when I come to points of realization like that or like trying to figure out what's actually going on, I just start asking myself a lot of questions. You know, like well why What is, what is it that I'm inspired by and then what commonalities are there? Mm -hmm. And I think I I share a very similar inspiration around a lot of just older, more land-based traditions Mm -hmm. around creating things. And a lot of them are indigenous and some of them are not indigenous. And I think one of the things I learned is that I have this perception of, 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 connection to the land around those creative pursuits. So like a lot of work on the West coast of the United States from indigenous folks is really based on like cedar and the, the, the growing things there. And that, that's sort of, that's a rootedness that I think a lot of folks who are in like the colonial system as like Westerners who moved to the United States or, um or a lot of other <laughs> colonial places in the world literally been uprooted and so when you see something that has what you're missing um then you just want it because you want that thing but it's not actually in replicating that cultural significant creative thing so if that makes any sense I know I'm not necessarily talking super eloquently about this, but I think one thing that happens is that we're like, Oh, I need that. And then you get that thing or you replicate it. And it's like, the thing that you want is not in, in that object. Like what you actually want is something much deeper and something that probably has a lot of roots in, in connection and being traumatized. And like, there's a lot of stuff going on that, that, isn't really being talked about, I think, or at least in some circles. I'm sure that it's spoken yeah. a lot about. I mean, I think if you look for it. I think for
0: me, with with you know Charles Atenshaw in particular, if if it weren't for the layer of it, which is you know the, the biggest layer, of course, of it being a, a complete uh, culture and mythology and everything of its own that I am not part of. Um, mm-hmm. If if that weren't the case. He would still be this craftsman that I would look up to in this huge way. You know? mm. Um, mm. and of course there there are craftspeople, you know, in, in our own traditions that uh, and, and going back hundreds of years.
3: One of the things I think is kind of beautiful about what you've been talking about in your relationship with Charles Adinch's work at least is is sort of how that work continues to speak and educate. Mm. uh well after the person who made it is gone and mm-hmm. yeah just the ability of those things to like whether it's the tool marks whether it's maybe the the connections that those pieces offer to their context um and the person who made them i think that it's just amazing like the power of some and many craft objects to you know inspire people now
0: yeah so that's an interesting thing i mean. I- we could go into a whole conversation about museums and stuff, and maybe we we don't need to do that here. But I <laughs> I lately have been thinking of I used to when I was younger and actually carving and not on a lathe so much um, date things you know put a year on the, on the bottom because I like it when I find something that I can relate to that I know is ninety eight years old or you know twenty seven <laughs> years old or however old mm-hmm. it. maybe it's kind of it gives a sense of its place in my idea of timeline of culture. But I, I don't do that actually on, on my bowls currently at all. You know, I, I just stamp them and that's it. And um, I hope that they get used. You know, I really hope that, that most of the things I make get used and I want them to look worn. I want them to look loved and I want them to not end up in a museum, you know, in, in any space of time and, and, uh, and also to not just end up on somebody's shelf somewhere, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I, that's an interesting, uh, again, <laughs> how far do we go down that road? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the, and that, of course, comes around back, circles into a question about art and craft um, and, and their differences and similarities.
2: Uh, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, I just thought I would bring that to the table because you asked your question about who are, who are mentors to me or yeah. you know, people who have influenced and... And other people that I admire, a lot of the people who you interview do a really good thing of refusing to, you know, mention other potters or other, you know, people so they don't miss anybody. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess I should do that too. But I will just say, you know, Curtis Buchanan, um, Hmm. he's so sweet,
2: you know? (laughs) It's true. such a
0: kind, sweet, I just, I don't, You know, even if I never make another Windsor chair, I I have made uh, one and I have two in parts (laughs) sitting there forever. Um, That guy influences me just by his sweetness, you know, Mm -hmm. just by him being there and and by the little things like, you know, him just liking to listen to the church bells and whatever in the background Mm -hmm. and not having the radio on and, and just actually liking to be alive to his little little acre of land there you know, hmm. that really affects me i think it's just really yeah. wonderful and so the other person you know down that road that that is really a a, a daily influence on me is wendell berry you know oh Ooh, yeah
3: um, nice what could be yeah. what could be
0: more sweet than that and yet he's also a firebrand you know and he's also yeah uh he's he's hardcore and um <laughs> you know with wendell berry there's there's three there's three strands right there's poetry There's essays and activism and there's, there's novels and I'm Mm -hmm. the, I'm the novel one. I I love his novels Mm. and (laughs) this ties right back into my love of a boring piece of wood. There's very few things (laughs) more boring than a Wendell Berry novel. (laughs) (laughs) They are the, there is no, there there is no plot. Um, And they are wonderful. They are so wonderful. You know, like, I don't know if you if you did, guys have read any of that
3: stuff.
1: Did he write, is there one about like a farm? It's like clabbered grass or clabbered
3: Yeah, dirt. I think that's actually.
1: I, that might be Gary Paulson. Or I think
0: something. so. I think that's Gary Paulson. Um, okay. he, that well, one doesn't what have Wendell Berry either. has done, and this, you can <laughs> edit this. <laughs> you it's can good. edit this it's all good. far out, I'm sure. <laughs> but um, what Wendell Berry has done is to write for. 60 years i guess um Mm -hmm. all about one fictional town which is his actual town in kentucky Um, Mm -hmm. but the fictionalized version of it going from the um from the the civil war to actually right now so he's Mm -hmm. written these communities so he writes you know one book will be from one person's first person and another book will be from another person's first person and you see them Mm -hmm. intertwining in their lives you know in this rural community and so there is no plot but there's um the same stories happening and interweaving from slightly different viewpoints but all in a rural context and there, i i just love it i don't know enough about it. Check it out. <laughs> but don't blame me if you do find out that they're really
2: boring <laughs> <laughs> Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think I've usually I usually have just stuck to his essays, but mm-hmm. um, that's mostly because I only seem to read nonfiction. <laughs> right. I'm trying to get out of it. It's really hard. Yeah.
0: Well, and his <laughs> nonfiction is right to the point, and I don't yeah. know. I don't find it good bedtime reading because <laughs> <laughs> because uh, so much needs to be fixed in the world, and you know he's got yeah. so many good ideas about fixing it that I can stay up <laughs> all night with that. <laughs> Uh, yeah oh you guys this has been great it's been really <laughs> lovely it's been really Aww. a sweet little time with you guys
3: yeah. <laughs> yeah well um we do have one final question we need to ask real quick before we wrap it up if that's okay yeah sure. um,
1: so if someone wants to see more of your work where can they find you
0: mm-hmm. well um you can come to the bakery mm-hmm and uh so we're in guelph which is in sort of central southern ontario so we're we're about an uh, hour and a half or two hours straight north of um, niagara falls uh, mm-hmm. so i'm not oh, actually cool. suggesting anyone's going to come to the bakery but i'm just saying that's where, <laughs> <we are. laughs> that's where the bread happens uh, <laughs> and uh, i live three blocks from the bakery so once you get to the bakery give me a ring and uh, <laughs> i um I am on Instagram as uh, Sapwood and Stars with uh, periods in between there. Um, Okay. Okay. And I don't do Facebook anymore. It's too toxic. And I'm really glad not to be there. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I do have a small gallery on my, actually on my bakery website, fullstarhearts.com, but it's not necessarily up to date. Um, and there's one, there's one housewares or homewares shop downtown here in Guelph that I do take my work to when when it needs a, a more of a gallery setting or a place to sell.
3: Um, cool. And, and then also Polestar Hearth has a Instagram account and a website as well, right? That's right.
0: Yeah. So you can, you can watch, I don't know.
3: I, I take pictures of bread every single day and then I'm
0: like, well, I can't post this, <laughs> you know, but it looks beautiful to me and I see the difference, but I can't, you know, wear people out. I don't like overposters, you know, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you can, you can certainly thumb through there. One of the fun things that we, we do and I might've sent you guys a picture or two is, uh, and it's one of my, my inventions, I think is, uh, the birth weight niche, which is, uh, a loaf of bread made in the weight of the newborn baby. Um, whoa and they're used to awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah, say it's a big piece of
0: yeah. <laughs> So, you know, uh anywhere from obviously five pounds to ten pounds, you know, we, I think we've made maybe even an eleven pound one um, for mom. And uh, those are a really fun thing to get to do, you know, like they're just a big round loaf that I can then uh, do fancy scoring on and you know uh, often based on the star because the, the star is sort of theme
2: heart. Uh, uh, and cool. uh, yeah
0: so that's one thing you can look for down there and then on my own personal Instagram is is bowls and a bit of woodworking I, I'm, I'm doing some chair and furniture stuff too and and then mostly there's pictures of you know little flowers or frozen things outside or <laughs> or the river that I love so much. Or like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> well, Jesse, thank you so much for joining us. I never expected that we would have um, such an encouraging conversation about planned obsolescence. So <laughs> <laughs> awesome! Well, if there's one thing That's I brought, then it's yes. Learn, <laughs>
0: learn to make planned obsolescence in your uh, in your craft. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, yeah. Thanks again for joining us. Though it was it was really great talking with you. Yeah, you
0: guys yeah. stay well, and maybe we meet one day. That would be lovely. Yeah.
1: <laughs> thanks.
3: Uh, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation, and also to everyone who has supported the show, whether financially or otherwise. An extra special thanks to Susan, Susanna, Ephraim, Ross, and Miriam for joining us on Patreon, and to Deb and Doug for your contributions through our website. We have lots of fun ideas of ways to participate in and contribute to the craft community, but we need everyone's support in order to do them. So if you're getting anything out of these conversations, please consider donating to the show.
1: Every contribution matters, both for helping us grow the podcast and raising money for craft scholarships. Also, thank you to our sponsors, North House Folk School in Minnesota, the John C. Campbell Folk School in Western North Carolina, and the Oak Spring Garden Foundation in Virginia.
3: If you'd like to see more images of guest work or stay up to date on other happenings like the class giveaways we've done with John C. Campbell or Pocosin Arts, please follow us on Instagram at CutTheCraftPodcast. Also, if you want to see more of our work, both of our accounts are linked in the bio on the podcast page.
1: You can also email us at CutTheCraftPodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or guest recommendations for the show, or even if you just want to
3: say hi. And as always, a huge thanks to Brad Vetter for your graphic design, to The High Divers and Luke Mitchell of The High Divers for letting us use your music and for help with production and now editing too. Thanks, Luke. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And to Justin Williams for writing those poetic tidbits, introducing our upcoming guests. Coming up, we have an interview with ceramic jewelry maker Makita Smith. So to get a little glimpse into our conversation, here's a clip. Thanks again for joining us.
1: See you next time.
5: They, I think, I think sometimes when I think about when loved ones or friends and family like react negatively to something that you might want to try or want to do, it's not really because they don't want you to do it. It's mostly because they're too afraid to live fulfilled for themselves that they're mm-hmm. projecting that onto you. And then when yeah. they see, for example, that you're out there living your passions and doing the things that they want to do oftentimes they get the courage to do stuff that they want to do themselves so sometimes Mm -hmm. it's like not about like oh this person's hating on me or they don't want me to be happy or whatever it's like they're scared from themselves so when you live in your truth you inspire people and you get you have the opportunity to show other people that they can do it too and I think that's something that's really priceless
3: totally yeah I couldn't agree more I mean that and that's also such a a compassionate and beautiful way to look upon the haters of the world. <laughs> <laughs> Where you're like this is you're like I know this isn't actually coming from you at me. Like I know yeah. that this is something else and being able to give that person that understanding, not in mm-hmm. like a condescending way or anything, yeah. but kind of it's even strange. if it's just in your head, I think is super healthy. Yeah. So.
5: Yeah, I think bit. it helps you. It's really for you like like all right, this person's hating on me because they aren't living their truth and they're not happy with themselves it's not a a real reflection of me and being able to differentiate that I think it's hard I think that's a skill (laughs) I think that's something that develops over time I don't think that's something that's innate because sometimes it does really hurt but I think Mm -hmm. it's just like how you frame like your thinking around things